Good to see you all here. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Slight correction, I've revised this topic to include these years, 1918 to 1926, no longer to 1989 to 1920. The whole world had a huge stake in that struggle, which I will describe in this lecture. The whites, as the Russian anti-communists were called, soon learned that their communist enemies would pursue them nightmarishly to the end of the world to kill them, and would never forget their deathless hatred. One white commander died in the West at the age of only 49, and I'm very suspicious that it was a natural death, uh, but it was pretty young to die. Uh, the last two were tracked down in France, seized, and put aboard Soviet ships. They disappeared and were never seen again. Even after the Second World War ended in 1945, the Soviet secret police were still hunting down the surviving commanders of the anti-communist white armies. In Russia, at the, the end of the First World War in 1918, had created an opportunity for intervention by the Western powers against the communists and in favor of the whites. Winston Churchill, the history maker, then holding office in Lloyd George's government of Great Britain, could see that opportunity clearly, along with all the terrible consequences of not taking it. He told Lord George, quote, that the, he told George that, quote, the Bolsheviks are the enemy of the human race and must be put down at any cost. We might as well legalize sodomy as recognize the Bolsheviks, end quote, because we now have legalized sodomy. But in both Britain and France, the war, uh, the People, and especially the war veterans, were unutterably weary of the war and saw no reason to get involved in Russia's troubles. It soon became obvious that except for a few hard-bitten professionals, no British or French troops could be used effectively in Russia. See, nobody had listened to Alaya Fatima, who told them that a great danger was coming out of Russia. Russia, the world's heartland, is cursed by geography. It is a gigantic natural prison. Oops. There it is. It is a gigantic natural prison. Let us survey its frontiers and see why. It has, I wish I had a map. It has an immense seacoast, but most of it is the Arctic shores of Siberia. Except for its far northeast coast facing Alaska, it is without road or rail connections to the rest of the world. The north coast, the Arctic Ocean coast, is icebound for most of the year. Through it, only, a few, only in a few days of summer are the world's most powerful icebreakers able to penetrate. On the north shore of European Russia, the long arm of the White Sea, reaches down to the ancient port of Archangel, but even that is closed by ice for at least half the year. 
only at the farthest northwest edge of, edge of Russia, at Murmansk on the Kola Inlet, does the last dying touch of the Gulf Stream keep the port open and ice-free all year. The Finnish-Russian frontier runs through vast, almost impenetrable forests. From the city first named St. Petersburg, then called Petrograd, then Leningrad, then St. Petersburg again after the fall of communism, there is a window open to the rest of the world by the Gulf of Finland, which is why Peter the Great built his capital there. But that window is closed by ice during the winter, is also closed by ice during the winter, and leads only to the Baltic Sea, which is blocked by Denmark at the Straits or by Germany, where it thrusts northward to within 50 miles of Sweden. South of St. Petersburg, a chain of lakes and swamps marks the Russian frontier with Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, and Poland. There is no national frontier with the Ukraine. In south of Ukraine, the Russian settled Cossack country reaches the Black Sea, uh, into which several of Russia's greatest rivers flow. But egress from the Black Sea, like egress from the Baltic Sea, can easily be blocked at the now major strait in the world, the mile-wide Bosphorus controlled by the strongly anti-Russian Turks. East of the Black Sea rise the wild and mighty peaks of the Caucasus, home of polyglot and fiercely independent peoples, whom throughout their history the Russians have sought unsuccessfully to conquer. They still can't do it. Today's Chechen rebels are a Caucasian people. Beyond the Caucasus Mountains lies the Caspian Sea, the world's largest body of water without an outlet, into which the Volga of song and story, Russia's mightiest river, flows dead end. East of the Caspian Sea stretch the wastes of Kazakhstan, then the sky-piercing peaks of the Tian Shan Range, rising four and a half miles high, than the bleak Gobi Desert of Mongolia. One must cross no less than 5,000 miles of forested and marshy Siberian plain, the dreaded Taiga, before coming at last to Russia's only ice-free port on the open sea other than Murmansk, Vladivostok on the Pacific. It was not for nothing that Lenin, the ultimate revolutionary, took his revolutionary name from the most remote of the huge, huge rivers that flow north through Siberia to the ice-bound Arctic Ocean uh, through the coldest inhabited country on Earth where the average winter temperature is 50 degrees below zero on the Fahrenheit scale and temperatures have been recorded down to 90 below zero. That river is the Lena whose name strikes a bitter chill through anyone who has ever been there or heard of it. In the days of the Tsar's political prisoners were exiled there. Lenin and Stalin both camped near it. In the days of Stalin's rule, it was here that he maintained what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the Gulag Archipelago, where thousands, perhaps in the end millions, starved and froze, with no one in the outer world knowing or caring. It was here that Stalin sent the 10 million small farmers called Kulaks, whom he admitted to President Franklin Roosevelt at the Alta Summit Conference that he had liquidated. 
the giant prison land which Lenin ruled after the victory of the Communist Revolution was, geopolitically speaking, the best possible base for his continuing effort to spread his revolution over the whole world. In the evening of the day, uh, the Winter Palace in Petrograd fell, which I described in my last lecture, November 8, 1917. The Congress of Soviets approved by thundering voice votes Lenin's decree nationalizing, meaning to confiscate and place under government ownership all the land in Russia, which the peasant Soviet had discussed in June when the communists were just rising to power. I described that in my last lecture as the greatest land seizure in history, which it was. Later that night, the communist government was formally established under the name of the Soviet of People's Commissars. Lenin was president, Trotsky Commissar for Foreign Affairs, Stalin Commissar for Nationalities. In the magisterial words of Richard Pipes, the greatest Soviet scholar of my generation, quote, such was the origin of a type of government that was to breed numerous offspring in the form of left and right one-party dictatorships in Europe uh, and the rest of the world and emerge as the main enemy and alternative to parliamentary democracy. Its distinguishing quality was the concentration of executive and legislative authority as well as the power to make all legislative, executive, and judicial appointments in the hands of a private association, the ruling party. <clears throat> this type of government had only one president, an imperfect and only partially realized one on which it was to some measure modeled, namely the Jacobin regime of revolutionary France which I've described earlier in other lectures. From the fall of 1793 until the Thermidorian coup, coup a year later, the Jacobin clubs, without formally meshing with the administration, seized the reins of government by monopolizing all executive positions and arrogating to themselves the power to veto government policies. Had the Jacobins stayed in power longer, they might well have produced a genuine one-party state. As it was, they provided the prototype which the Bolsheviks, leaning on Russia's autocratic traditions, brought to perfection, end quote. In this brilliant passage, this great historian sums up the astonishing achievement of Lenin, the ultimate revolutionary, who provided and invented the system of government used by both Hitler and Stalin to rule and to kill millions of human beings. This tells us why Lenin was the most evil man of the accursed 20th century, almost the devil in time. After the Communist Revolution in 1917, Kerensky's feeble effort to return to Petrograd with about 1,200 Cossacks was brushed aside November 12th. But Lenin had not yet established his complete tyranny. Much opposition to his regime remained in the largest country in the world. In Petrograd, the winter cold ripped the far northern city like a blanket from outer space. The snow was deep and the streets were dark because there was not enough electric power for the city. Periodic bursts of gunfire could be heard throughout the night. At the Smolny Institute from which he had launched his revolution, Lenin worked day and night in a corner room on the third floor. In that room was an iron bed, a table, a few chairs, a couch, and two telephones. The lights flickered with the vagaries of the power, and there was not much heat, 
Most of the time, Lenin wore an overcoat. Rarely has a man exercised such power with so few of the trappings of power. Lenin was totally uninterested in physical appearances and scornful of pomp and ceremony. He had his revolution, and that was all that mattered to him. During the first, during his first ten months as ruler of Russia, his only bodyguard was his chauffeur. He was remarkably accessible, especially to foreign visitors. He was supremely confident. Despite his almost volcanic activity, he always seemed to know exactly what he was doing and where he was going. He dominated by the sheer power of his mind and the force of his indomitable will. There has not been another Western leader since Napoleon whom Lenin resembled in more ways than one to match him in either quality. But Napoleon had an Italian weakness for spectacle and the grand gesture. Lenin was supremely indifferent to both. In his unique combination of audacity and realism, he stands with the great commanders of history, not only Napoleon, but also Julius Caesar and the greatest of them all, Alexander of Macedon. And the revolution, the utter destruction of everything that had been honored and upheld in the old Russia, of every moral and religious principle, of every traditional relationship, the universal demolition which his new order required was his unwavering, unchanging goal. He never took his eyes off it. During late November and December 1917, he bullied the Central Executive Committee of the Soviets into giving his government power to rule by decree. Lenin's answer to the generals preparing to challenge him in the South to non-communist political parties, which he had banned for opposing one-party rule, and to socialism, <coughs> like the great writer Maxim Gorky, who criticized his seizure and abuse of power, was the same for all, terror. On December 20th, 1917, Lenin created to direct and organize his terror one of the most feared organizations the world has ever known, the first foreshadowing of Hitler's Gestapo, which was copied from it. So much feared, so much hated, that his name was changed for propaganda purposes and to divert attention away from it no less than five times. It began as the All-Russian Committee Against Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. Cheka was his Russian acronym. Then it became OGPU, then NKBD, then MBD, then KGB. Whatever its name, the reality remains the same. Where are we going to find our Fukia Tinbill, Lennon asked. Fukia Tinbill was the public prosecutor of the Committee of Public Safety in the French Revolution during the Reign of Terror. The cold-eyed bureaucrat who sent at least 100 men to the guillotine every single day. The communists were explicitly committed to following his example. Fukia Tinbill's example. On December 15, 1917, Trotsky declared, quote, There is nothing immoral in the proletariat finishing off the dying class. This is its right. You are indignant at the petty terror we directed against our class opponents. But we put on notice that in one month at most, this terror will assume more frightful forms on the model of the great revolutionaries of France. Our enemies will face not prison, but the guillotine, end quote. They never actually set up a guillotine, but that's what he was thinking about. Lenin's choice to head the Cheka was Felix Dzerzhinsky, 
a gaunt, glittering-eyed Pole whose work and dedication to the revolution, if not quite his ability, matched Lenin's. He had been at the apical meeting in Sukhanov's apartment, October 23rd, which I described in my lecture last month, at which it was decided to make the Communist Revolution. He was assisted by another participant in that meeting, Moses Uritsky. On November 25th, 1917, elections were held for the Constituent Assembly, which was supposed to draft the Constitution for Russia. For generations, the reformers or would-be reformers of Russia had dreamed of a truly representative assembly chosen by universal male suffrage without proper qualifications for voting, which would have full legislative power in place of the ancient autocracy of the czars. In the chaotic conditions of 1917, during the rule of Kerensky's provisional government, the fulfillment of this dream had been long delayed, but now it had come at last. All arrangements had been made for it before the communists came to power, and quickly as they moved after taking power, they could not move fast enough to stop it. Some 18 million votes were cast for the Social Revolutionary Party, whose main platform was to take over all the arable land in Russia and distribute it among the peasants. Less than 11 million votes were cast for the communists, who had never won a free election anywhere in the world. The Social Revolutionaries would control the Constituent Assembly with a solid majority. Lenin could not permit that. His Communist Party must rule. That is what the one-party state required. On January 18, 1918, the Constituent Assembly was scheduled to meet. Crowds appeared with banners reading all power to the Constituent Assembly. Latvian soldiers, obedient to communist orders, fired on them, killing nine and wounding 20, capturing and burning the banners. The scene was repeated an hour later. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Lenin arrived with a pistol in the pocket of his overcoat. The assembly session opened at four o'clock, four hours late. No sooner had the chairman pronounced the constituent assembly in session and rung the speaker's bell than leading communist Yekov Sverdlov, supported by fist pounding and foot stamping in the background, rushed to the platform, tore the bell out of the chairman's hands, and began a speech demanding that the assembly immediately recognize that the Soviets had supreme, the supreme power and that its only proper function was to ratify their decrees. At length, an election was held for permanent speaker. The social revolutionary leader, Viktor Chernoff, won. Chernoff gave a speech full of dreams about a constitutional democratic Russia embarking on the road to socialism. Lenin yawned, stretched out on the floor, and went to sleep. At one o'clock in the morning, on a signal for Lenin, all the communists walked out of the assembly. At 4.30 in the morning, a freezing fog enveloped the city and dimmed the few lights to pale glimmers. There was darkness and silence in this city just below the Arctic Circle. Of the demonstrators who had carried the banners in the afternoon and been shot for doing so, there were none now. There was no help anywhere. The world had abandoned Russia. In his room at the Smolny Institute, Lenin now lay on his iron bed. His work of destruction was done. Representative democracy was dead in Russia for the next 70 years. He had killed it. The Constituent Assembly never met again.
In August 1918, Lenin gave a speech at the Michelson factory south of Moscow. As usual, he was accompanied only by his chauffeur bodyguard, whose name was Stephen Gill. After Lenin's speech, many of the audience crowded around him. It included several women. One of them was small and nondescript, with dark rings around her eyes, wearing a faded black dress and clutching a handbag. Her name was Fania Kaplan, and she was a social revolutionary terrorist. Years of solitary confinement in the Tsarist prisons had left her almost blind. She drew a pistol from her handbag and fired three shots. She was close enough to Lenin to touch him, so it did not matter that she could hardly see him. The maker and master of the communist revolution fell heavily to the ground. One of her bullets had barely missed Lenin, tearing through his overcoat. A second bullet lodged relatively harmlessly in his left shoulder. The third bullet struck the left side of his neck, was deflected into his chest, missed the heart and the aorta by a fraction of an inch, pierced his lung, and ended under his right collarbone. Rarely, if ever, in the history of the world has so much depended on the unpredictable course of one wayward bullet. In August 1918, there was not and could not have been any viable replacement for Lenin. The fate of hundreds of millions of people and the destiny of three quarters of a century rode on Fania Kaplan's third shot. When Muhammad Ali Adjir shot Pope John Paul the Great in St. Peter's Square, a supernatural hand turned the bullet so that it did not kill him. God had more work for him to do. When Klaus von Stauffenberg planted the bomb to kill Hitler, someone moved the briefcase containing the bomb under a heavy oak table, which saved Hitler's life. But for Lenin to die at the hands of a revolutionary in 1918, fitting though it would have been, was not to happen. God tells us that vengeance is mine. We will learn in September how God inflicted his vengeance on Lenin, who died the most terrible death that imagination can conceive. November 20th, uh, 1917, Lenin ordered the nominal commander of the Russian army, General Dukonin, to begin negotiations for an armistice. De Conan refused to obey the order because Lenin's government was not, quote, supported by the army and the country, end quote. Lenin dismissed him immediately and replaced him with N.V. Krylenko, the student rebel of, the ni- of 1905, who had since become a schoolteacher and obtained a commission during the war as an ensign in the Navy, the lowest commission officer's rank. Ensign Krylenko collected a small force of communist sailors in Petrograd and boarded a train with them, setting out on an excruciatingly slow journey southward to army headquarters at Mogilev near the Polish border. It was 400 miles from Petrograd to Mogilev. It took Krylenko and his sailors no less than nine days to cover that distance, while the present and past leadership of the army debated what to do when he arrived. Next month, we'll tell you what happened when when he arrived at Mogilev. Marshal Mannheim, who was there, uh, beheld his train, and he decided what to do. Here sounds the note of the theme that rumbles like distant thunder through the whole grim history of the Russian Civil War, conditioned by the imprisoning geography of that vast land, the theme of the trains. There could be no water transportation in winter when everything was frozen, and even in summer, most Russian waterways 
went nowhere that anyone wanted to go. There was no road network. Most towns and cities with, with, with their roads were like islands in the countryside, not connected with each other. Airplanes had not come into use in Russia. Outside the, of the Cossacks of the, in the south, few had horses. The distances were too far to walk. Only by train was movement about the country possible. Everything depended on the trains. But the primitive Russian industrial plant and machine shops had mostly broken down under the stress of the war. Nothing could be imported because of the war and the geography, so there was no choice but to keep the existing locomotives and cars running by every patchwork contrivance imaginable. They were indispensable, yet always breaking down. Studying the Russia of 1918 to 1920, one gets the impression that nearly everyone, great and small, high and low, revolutionary and aristocrat, peasant and bourgeois, officer and soldier, red and white, spent a great deal of time waiting for the train. And one never knew who might be on the train when it finally came. I have a footnote here. This was superbly shown by... David Lean's magnificent motion picture jump. If you ever seen that, note the trains. At last, on December 2nd, Ensign Krylenko's faltering locomotive was less than a day's journey from Mogilev. General Dukonin gave orders for the bridge that would have to cross to reach Mogilev to be blown up. His men would not do it. Lenin's revolutionaries had infiltrated the army. Alone in his office, his mind whirling, Dukonin was given an order per permitting several high-ranking generals to travel south to the Don, land of the hopefully still loyal Cossacks. These generals had all been arrested in September in the confusion over General Kornilov's imagined coup, which I described last, last time. Dukonin signed the order and the generals went south. He knew what that meant for him and Russia under Lenin's rule. He said he had signed his death warrant, but he made no attempt to escape himself. The fugitive generals, all but one, put on disguises. General Lukomsky shaved off his beard and mustache and dressed as a German colonist. General Romanovsky, perhaps thinking of Krylenko, dressed as a naval ensign. General Martov dressed as a common soldier. General Denikin dressed as a Russian nobleman. All of them took the train with thousands of other displaced persons and soldiers jerking and rattling south through the numbing cold of a Russian winter. Only Kornilov, strong, dark, slant-eyed, sharp-featured, a Cossack son, a limited intelligence but with a lion's heart, who just three months before had been commander-in-chief of the Russian army, at first refused such humiliation, he marched south with a loyal regiment. But Krylenko, when he arrived, sent an armored train, the railroad equivalent of a tank, after Kornilov, whose men scattered, and then he took the same course as his brother officers. He dressed as a Romanian peasant, had a false passport for himself made out in the name of Larry and Ivanov, and boarded a train for the dawn. In the far south of Russia, chaos and despair reigned. The Cossacks long regarded as a military pillar of the Tsarist regime, unshakably and unquestionably loyal, had become disillusioned as far back as the time of Rasputin. Even when Kornilov, one of their own, appeared among them, they would not respond. Even when their own elected chieftain, 
A.M. Kaladin of the Don called on them to follow him in support of the whites, they would not. Of the tens of thousands of Cossacks, only 147 responded to Kaladin's call. On February 11th, he resigned his office and killed himself. Kornilov and his associates were not much better off. They had only about 4,000 men, more officers than soldiers. They retreated south from Don to the Kuban region through icy marshes in constant danger from communist armored trains. What the whites in the Russian Civil War <coughs> most needed was unity and command. Their best leader, as we will see next month, was Marshal Mannerheim of Finland. But the whites would not consider him because he demanded independence for Finland, his native country, which the whites would not grant. So they settled on Admiral Alexander Kolchak, the last commander of the Black Sea Fleet, who was a stout anti-communist, but trapped in the middle of Siberia at the city of Omsk, about as far from the open sea as it is possible to get on the planet Earth. His knowledge of land warfare was virtually nil. In the spring of 1918, Lenin finally brought the war with Germany to an end. It is a very sad commentary on the degradation of the West that its governments, except for blessed Emperor Charles of Austria, had left this essential task for the communists to do. Trotsky was Commissar of Foreign Affairs in the communist government, but he strongly opposed the peace treaty with Germany. Lenin disposed of his opposition as he had that of his comrades who voted against making the revolution with icy disdain and the sheer power of his overwhelming will. He decided that Trotsky should no longer handle foreign affairs, in which he had proved himself incompetent, and made him commissar for war instead. So it was Trotsky who took charge of the civil war against the whites. He had no military experience, relying instead on sheer ruthlessness. After one unit ran away during the battle, during a battle, Trotsky had every tenth man shot, the ancient Roman practice which they called decimation. Then Trotsky boarded an armored train and rode through Russia and Siberia, descending upon the scattered white forces. In Siberia, he found that a group of Czech troops who had formerly served Austria and now only wanted to go home had started east to get there by the longest possible way on the Trans-Siberian Railroad across the Vladivostok, a journey of 5,000 miles, then back around the world to Europe. They retained their arms and on the way resolved to resist by force any attempt to disarm them. In November 1919, Admiral Kolchak began a retreat from Omsk. Winter is not a good time to retreat anywhere in Russia, especially not in Siberia. Snow covered everything, and the bitter cold of the great winter had begun. The railroad had two tracks, and there was a gravel road beside it. There was no possible way to cross roadless Siberia in winter except by the rails of the gravel road. No help from the east. Nominally still under Kolchak's authority, could reach the refugees, except those at the very front of the procession, <clears throat> because they were using both tracks of the railroad, and the Czechs saw to it that they were always at the front of it, with trains loaded with their booty as well as themselves. The water tanks were all frozen. Fires had to be built to thaw them out before water could be pumped into the boilers of the engines to generate steam. 
If the engines were allowed to grow cold, their pipes froze and burst, making them unable to move. Then they had to be derailed. No easy task for men working only with levers at temperatures of 20, 30, and 40 degrees below zero, even more. On the Lena River, as we have said, the temperature has been measured at 90 degrees below zero, and the Trans-Siberian Railroad crosses the Lena River. The road beside the tracks was a Via Dolorosa of suffering, choked with lurching solid-axled peasant carts, staggering horses, mules, and ponies with almost nothing to eat, and therefore collapsing and dying in noisome death along the road. There were also thousands of people on foot, but when communists advance anywhere in the world, everyone who can, please, even in conditions like this, but they could hardly walk 5,000 miles in such cold. Once again, for the last time, the trains. Admiral Kolchak did not help matters by traveling with no less than seven trains, one of which carried in 28 cars the entire gold reserve of Russia. He rightly believed that to bring out this gold reserve was essential to the whole white cause, but under the prevailing conditions, the presence of these 28 railroad cars loaded with gold could hardly have created a favorable impression on the desperate refugees, who must have wished that instead of gold, they had contained something that could be eaten, drunk, or put into the locomotives to make them go. And the relative comfort enjoyed by Kolchak and his large staff on the other six trains did not go unnoticed. The Czechs were openly hostile now. On December 13th, they ordered Kolchak's trains off the track normally used for traffic going west, reserving the fast track east for themselves. There was nothing Kolchak could do about it. On December 27th, the Czechs stopped his trains forever at Nizhny Udinsk and took him prisoner. Many of his men had abandoned him by now, but he still had one loyal general named Kappel. Not until January 20th, 1920, did Kappel arrive at Nizhny Udinsk. By then, Kolchak had been taken off his train, put with a few of his staff in Czech custody. All of them were sent on to the next town, Irkutsk, where the communists now ruled. The Czechs turned Kolchak over to them in return for safe passage. A cryptic message from Lenin to the Siberian Military Revolutionary Council seems to show that he ordered Kolchak's execution. When Kappel, arriving at Nizhny Udinsk, heard of Kolchak's capture, he tried to push on faster along the icy, rutted road beside the rails to get to Irkutsk in time to save his commander. But his feet had been badly frostbitten. He could move only by sleigh. As he lay motionless in his sleigh in the numbing cold, frostbite, and the ensuing gangrene moved up his legs to his abdomen. But he would not stop. His commander was in deadly danger. Nor would he give up his command, knowing that no one else with him could carry it on as he could. On January 27th, he died in his sleigh, probably the only general in history literally frozen to death at the head of his men. The end came February 7th, 1920. It was the darkest hour before the dawn. The Siberian winter gripped the land like a polar bear's embrace. The headlights of a truck, with some armed men standing around it, gleamed dull yellow upon a circle of trampled snow, and beyond it a black hole in the white expanse. From the hole came, startling in the frozen stillness, the sound of rushing waters. For nearby was Lake Baikal, 
which is a mile deep and 300 miles long and contains one-fifth of all the fresh water on earth and the Angara River that ran by under the glimmer of the truck headlights is its only outlet. With the pressure of a vertical mile of water behind it, the Angara River cannot freeze. Ice forms above it in the depth of winter, but it's always possible to chop a hole in the ice, and the guardians of the nearby prison had done so. It was a quick and easy way to dispose of the dead in a time and place where obviously they could not be buried because all the ground was frozen. Admiral Alexander Kolchak, last leader of the civil war against communism in Russia, was brought handcuffed into the funnel of light. He was offered a bandage for his eyes. He refused it. Chudnovsky, chairman of the Communist Extraordinary Investigating Committee, asked Kolchak if he had anything to say. Kolchak's voice and bearing were calm and steady. Would you be so good, Kolchak said, to get a message to my wife in parish to say that I bless my son. End quote. Quote, I'll see what can be done, Kuznowski grunted, if I don't forget about it. End quote. He forgot about it. A priest was present, one that the Cheka had not yet killed. He prayed with Kolchak and stepped back. The soldiers raised their rifles. A volley crackled. Kolchak fell. His body was kicked through the hole. In an instant, the black torrent swept him away, rolling on through death-cold leaves to its junction with the Yenisee River, the Stony Tonga, Tunguska, and last of the ever-flowing, ever-frozen ocean. Thus died the last defender of free Russia for its liberation in our own time.